This is the Down East EM Podcast. And now we can really enter into part two of our discussion, which is the phase three results from the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, so as we dive into this study and its results, it's going to get a little bit more technical and a little bit higher level in terms of review of literature and how to assess it. But we're going to try to keep it, you know, 10,000 foot view for our listeners so that they can absorb what we're saying. So Pfizer yesterday released its phase three study results. And to break it down in an organized fashion, we'll go over the intervention control, inclusions, exclusions, outcome measures, and results. So the intervention in this study was, of course, the vaccination, which is a 30 micrograms per dose vaccination with two doses delivered 21 days apart. The control was placebo, which was a saline injection for those individuals. The inclusion criteria were patients 16 years of age or older who are healthy or had stable chronic medical conditions. The exclusion criteria for the study was age less than 16 years, a medical history of COVID-19, and the wording is important there because if patients had a medical history in their chart of having a COVID-19 infection, they were excluded. That is different, however, than when they went to see if patients had immunological response to COVID-19 going into the study. Other exclusion criteria were treatment with immunosuppressive medications or being diagnosed with an immunocompromising condition. The outcome measures, there were two. They were really looking at safety and efficacy. So in terms of safety outcomes, there were three things that they were looking into. And within this regard, they broke it down into sort of solicited, specifically asked about, or unsolicited or unprompted patients giving this information uh, on their own accord. So safety outcome number one was solicited specific local and systemic adverse events and or the use of fever or pain medication up to seven days or one week after each individual dose of the vaccine. Safety outcome number two was both prompted and unprompted reports of reactogenicity events up to one month after receipt of the vaccine. Now, reactogenicity is essentially the idea that we are encouraging our immune system to respond, right? That's the whole idea. We're making our immune system activate and react. With that, there are certain things we expect to experience as our immune system kicks up. And that can be things like fevers, muscle aches, injection site pain, etc. The third safety outcome were unsolicited serious events up to six months after receipt of the vaccine. And then the outcomes with regard to efficacy, or did it work? There were three as well. They looked at the rate of COVID infection at least seven days from the second dose of vaccination or placebo. Number two, they specifically looked at the rate of COVID infection in those with and without evidence of prior infection. Again, coming back to that idea of antibodies. And then number three, they looked at the rate of severe infection following the second dose of vaccination. And this was uh, what you would expect patients with end organ dysfunction, admission to an ICU, et cetera. Okay, so results. Again, the two questions we're trying to answer are, is it safe and does it work? Let's answer those in the reverse order though, because if it doesn't work, I don't care how safe it is or not. So does it work? The short answer to that is yes. Now, while the study started with about 44,000, almost 45,000 participants They had about 43,500 that got the vaccinations and about 38,000 that got the two doses of the vaccine or placebo and were available for follow-up at two months. So for this group, 
we see very clearly that it was effective in decreasing, nearly eliminating the incidence of contracting COVID-19. For the group that got the vaccination, there were eight total cases versus 162 for the group that got placebo. This correlated to a 95% vaccine efficacy. Now, figure three in the article itself is a very striking figure showing the difference or in the cumulative incidence of infection between the two groups. And we actually see a huge decrease in almost leveling off of infections in the group getting the vaccine really after 14 days of receiving the first dose of the vaccination, which is very important. But again, this is meant to be a two-dose regimen and the take-home message here is a 95% efficacious vaccine after two doses spaced 21 days apart. Interestingly, in their discussion, they recognized that they were looking for a vaccine that had an efficacy of greater than 30%. Now, how they got to that number is relatively complicated, complex, and has to do with the incidence of disease in a population, the number of people that are organically infected, the number of people that are vaccinated, etc., and it's trying to target a herd immunity, but this is obviously well above that number. So that brings us to question two, is it safe? And in evaluating this, we look primarily at figure two in the paper, and unfortunately, but I also believe probably purposely, this information is presented only graphically. There's no table or raw numbers for us to evaluate, but we can see from the graphics, which are bar graphs, the incidence of local reactions and then also the incidence of systemic reactions to the vaccination. So when we look at the incidence of local reactions, which include pain, redness, and swelling, we see pain at the injection site is very common for those receiving the actual vaccination. Interestingly, the placebo also causes some pain. If you're injecting saline into a deltoid, that can be slightly painful. But the inflammatory reaction, which again is purposeful, causes some pain in the muscle. We've all experienced that with prior vaccinations. The vast majority of these we're going to see as mild. So in our major demographic, the 16 to 55-year-olds in the first dose, about 50% had a mild reaction, about 30% had a moderate reaction. If we look at the greater than 55-year-olds, we see a slightly less reaction rate. And we are going to see that across the board because as we get older, unfortunately, our immune system and its aggressiveness weaken slightly. And across the board, we're going to see that as a trend that the older population here, and they did a cut point of 55 years old. Don't blame me for that cut point, but cut point of 55 years old for the younger versus older population. The older population had lower instances of local and systemic reactions simply because our immune system is less robust as we get up in years. So I'm looking at the 55-year-olds for that first dose pain at the injection site. We see about 55% had a mild reaction and 15% had a moderate reaction. Now, Now, interestingly, for the local reaction, the reactions to the injection site, we see these at the second dose, the numbers are collectively lower. So for those 16 to 55 years old, if we had a mild, moderate, and severe pain at an injection site, for the first dose, it was 83%. When we look at the second dose, it was 78%. For those greater than 55, cumulative effect was 71% for the first dose and 66% 
for the second. By far the most common local reaction was pain at the injection site. In terms of the other possible local reactions, which included redness and swelling across all groups, it never went above 7%, so much lower incidence there. How about systemic effects? So that we're going to see in figure 2b on our graphic. Now it's important to remember or recognize that this data is from actually a smaller subset of the population, which they labeled as the reactogenicity subset, which represented about 8,200 patients. So what were the systemic events and how frequent were they? There are several that are listed, and to give you them in general order of frequency from most frequent to least frequent, they were fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and then they listed out as well fever, vomiting, and diarrhea, which were pretty uncommon. They also reported out the use of antipyretic or pain medication. Now, how frequent were these side effects or systemic events? Some of them were pretty frequent, and that should not surprise us. Our body is, again, mounting an immune response. It is being kicked into creating a immunity to the pathogen that it's recognizing in the form of the vaccine. So we're going to have some systemic sensation oftentimes. Now, in terms of general trend, we see that the systemic effects were much more common in the second dose. Again, we kind of have that priming initially, and then we have a stronger immune response with the second dose administration. And they were more common in the younger age population, similar to what we mentioned earlier, where the more robust immune system contributes. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here? What kind of numbers can you put into your mind and kind of chew over? Again, the most common thing cited was fatigue. So in that younger group, after dose two, there was about a 60, a 59% incidence of fatigue in that group. The next common was headache at 52%, then muscle pain at 37, chills at 35, and it goes down from there. Unfortunately, the information is presented in a bar graph and not a table, and the bar graph has included within it the mild, the moderate, and the severe symptoms. So that is in total, again, about 60% of those in the younger age population will feel fatigue after dose two, but you'll see that the vast majority of these are going to be either moderate, which is actually more common, or mild. Now, the frequency of severe systemic events after the first dose was less than 1%, 0.9%. And then severe systemic events were less than 2% in the vaccine recipients after the second dose or either dose, except for fatigue, where severe fatigue was reported in 3.8% of respondents and headache, where 2% of respondents reported a severe headache after the second dose. I think this is an instance where a picture is worth a thousand words, and it is worth looking at these numbers represented graphically. And so we reference you to our blog post on the same topic to take a look at that as well. So there's the data from this study. We see that it is about 95% effective. It works very well. And that the most common side effect or systemic event would be fatigue at around 60% and headache at around 52% of participants but that only about 4% will report severe fatigue and 2% will report a severe headache. Now, of course, the question lingers in many of our minds is what are the long-term safety outcomes for this vaccine? And of course, we simply do not have that data as yet. Safety monitoring is going to continue for another two years 
for these patients in this trial, but we simply don't have that data yet. So we have to weigh in our own minds what that means to us. Obviously, this is preventing a very serious disease, and we need to weigh the risk benefits, pros and cons of those numbers on an individual person-to-person basis. And so just before we wrap up, I think the last question to ask ourselves is, do we feel as though this vaccine was rushed? And in asking that question, do we feel as though there are some safety measures that may not be represented in this data? So that brings us to Operation Warp Speed, which to me sounds like more of a C-rated science fiction movie than an actual uh, endeavor to create a pandemic vaccination. But regardless, Operation Warp Speed has been in progress. It's an accelerated vaccine process. And we see that in general, we see the process for creating a new vaccine is generally a six-year time frame, which has been accelerated to now about 14 months. And how were they able to do that? And is that safe? So I think that first question that I posed was, is this rushed? Yes, you have to recognize that this was indeed a rushed process, but then does rushed necessarily mean that any steps were skipped or that it is unsafe? And personally, I would say probably no, but I think again, that answer is going to be individual. So we will again include an infographic that shows how they were able to condense that nearly six years down to essentially one year. And really what they did was they allowed processes to happen simultaneously. In our normal vaccine typical process, you do phase one, no phase two is allowed to commence until phase one is complete, phase two, phase three, etc. And as you can see in the infographic for Operation Warp Speed, several things were allowed to happen simultaneously, assuming and hoping upon success of the initial steps or the necessary preceding steps to allow things to get to where we are today. So in truth, no real steps within the vaccine creation process were skipped. They were accelerated and they were allowed to happen simultaneously. So to come full circle on what we talked about today, there was a lot. Really, we talked about mRNA vaccines. Then we talked about the Pfizer study and its phase three results. We recognize that an mRNA vaccine is not novel. The idea has been around for a decade plus. It's been looked into for things like the rabies vaccine, but it generally hasn't come into common practice, likely because of the fragility of mRNA and its need to be stored at very cold temperatures. We recognize that it's different from a normal vaccine in that we're not getting protein injected into us, but we are again getting mRNA injected, and that is going into our cells and making the protein that our body's going to create an immune response to. It's different. It makes you feel a little bit funny, but it's I felt comfort in recognizing that when we get the common cold, that's what that virus is doing. When we get any of those common viral pathogens in our body, they're using that same mRNA to ribosome to protein production system. So in doing that for a vaccine doesn't make me feel quite so queasy, but again, individual decisions to be made here. And going on to talk about the Pfizer phase three study that came out yesterday, we see that they had a total of 43 and a half or so thousand patients that were involved in the study. And it does get broken down as we go through the different layers and um, areas of the uh, investigation, both looking at safety versus efficacy. But in looking at the efficacy, we found a very high efficacy rate of 95%. There were eight cases in the patients that received the vaccination versus 162 in the placebo group. 
very efficacious. In terms of safety, you can feel this vaccine, right? We know from some other vaccines that we've gotten that it can cause a local reaction and it can cause systemic symptoms. And that is definitely borne out in this study as well, with about 60% of patients reporting some degree of fatigue, 52% reporting some headache, 37% reporting some muscle pain. Again, it's going to be more common if you're younger, and it's going to be more common after the second dose. In terms of severe symptoms, we're going to see about a 4% rate of severe fatigue and a 2% rate of severe headache. We don't have long-term outcome data or safety profiles for this vaccination, but that is not different than our normal practice for vaccines. And in terms of Operation Warp Speed, the way they were able to turn that over quickly was to allow many phases to run simultaneously. So that's it. I think this is an interesting and complicated and dynamic situation. We all have to make a personal decision related to our exposure risk, the people that we are around, our risks ourselves of getting significantly sick or ill or dying from COVID-19 versus our willingness to take on a relatively novel vaccination. Thank you so much for your time. I hope this was helpful in terms of making your decision and please reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns you may have. We'd be happy to help facilitate you making an educated decision for yourself, your patients, and your family.